0: to the Rebel at large adventure podcast i'm drifter
1: and i'm gypsy
0: talking about ghost towns
1: graveyards
0: outlaws heroes
1: and ladies of the night
0: howdy folks thanks again for joining us for yet another episode
1: in this adventure we will be taking you to montana deer lodge specifically for no other reason than touring the historic prison that still stands today
0: so Deer Lodge is a small town located between Bozeman and Missoula. Closer to Missoula, I'd say. Yeah. I think it's 90, something like that. You kind of take up from Bozeman and it goes northwestish.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
0: So anyway, uh, Deer Lodge is home to just shy of 3,000 folks as of the 2019 census. Their peak population hit in 1960 with a total of 4,681 residents.
1: Not a lot of people, huh? (laughs)
0: Not a whole lot.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, people from all over the world came to Montana to try their hand at mining when gold was first discovered in Elder Creek in 1863. With this many people in search of wealth, it also brought with it individuals who may have had criminal intentions in mind or became criminals while living there.
0: Not everyone there was a bad person, and therefore the ones trying to make an honest living wanted something done about the criminals.
1: Henry Plumer, if you don't know who he is, listen to our Mile Marker 6 episode and find his story. Well, he tried to help clean up the area by having the first gel in Montana built in Bannock. It was a small log cabin that could fit maybe two prisoners. It's, it's really small, um, and it still stands today. And we talked about that also in the mile marker six.
0: So after the vigilantes hung Henry Plummer, the only law that Montana had left was the vigilantes. On May 26, 1864, Montana became its own territory. And with that, brought federal officials as well as the first attempts at legal law enforcement.
1: The small jail and Bannock was not enough to house any of the federal criminals captured in Montana. Therefore, they would be sent to the nearest state penitentiary, which was in Detroit, Michigan. That's pretty far away from Montana. Bit of a stretch. (laughs) It was extremely expensive for them to transport prisoners, as well as very dangerous. The guards risked their lives transporting these men, and there was also a a very high probability that they would escape.
0: The territorial governor, James M. Ashley, wanted to fix this problem. So he went to Congress and pleaded for a properly equipped penitentiary. On January 22nd of 1867, Congress approved a bill allowing them to build a federal prison and granted them $40,000 to work with.
1: Which is just shy of $640,000 today. Yeah. They appointed Charles S. Ream and William Sturges to find the perfect location. The men felt that the mining camp of Argenta, correct? Yep. Argenta would be the perfect place for the penitentiary. But they were overruled by the territorial legislator who felt that one of Montana's first settlements would be the perfect location. On November 19, 1867, the ruling was made to build the penitentiary in Deer Lodge. But it would be two years before they would be able to start construction, Some of the people in Deer Lodge did not want the penitentiary built in their town and contested the territorial government's claim to the site until the U.S. Attorney's General Office basically told them, tough shit, we already own the land. I mean, not in those exact words, but you get it, right?
0: Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Oddly enough, they appointed the Deer Lodge physician, Armistead Hughes Mitchell, to be the construction supervisor. As he was getting bids for the building, he realized that Montana did not have all the supplies the plans had called for, so he was faced with his first task, which was to take the original building plans, which would have cost about hundred grand to complete, and cut them down to fit the budget of $40,000. The original plans called for a central building and two wings. Mitchell settled on just one wing containing 14 single cells. On June 2nd, 1870, officials gathered to lay the cornerstone, and just because we think it's fun, inside the cornerstone they placed a newspaper, money, and our go-to whiskey of choice, an eight-ounce flask of Old Crow, (laughs) which I just happen to have, an eight-ounce flask of Old Crow. In celebration? We'll commemorate their (laughs) their efforts. Their efforts. (laughs) You want some?
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Before we get a bunch of flack about drinking Old Crow, as I know how cheap it is, (laughs) listen to Guy Clark's Parking Lot song. If that doesn't inspire you, then you'd never understand.
1: I like that song. (laughs) I like Guy Clark, actually, in general. He's a good artist. Mm -hmm. So not only did the original plans call for two wings, but each wing was to be three stories high. Deer Lodge Prison was one wing, one story high with 14 6-by-8-foot brick cells. Each cell was meant for one man to be locked inside. The ground freezes in Montana, so they had to place the building 18 inches in the ground. Therefore, each cell was constantly damp. There was no running water. The men just had two buckets in their cell, one for clean water and one for, well, you know.
0: Yeah, gross. I don't think
1: we need to say it right. <laughs>
0: So there was no electricity in the cells, they just had small windows to let the sunlight in during the day, and at night, they would use kerosene lanterns. The building was essentially just a shell with grates for windows. The prison thus far was completed on October 6th, 1870. It took them roughly four months to build.
1: Yeah, because it was super small. Yeah. <laughs> I could not imagine the, sel- the smell inside of this place. No moving air. It's practically underground. They have ship buckets and are using kerosene lanterns. Barf. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> and the men probably didn't get to shower very often either.
0: If at all. Yeah.
1: So, ugh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no running water, so there is no shower. (laughs) Yeah. Well, on July 2nd, 1871, U.S. Marshal William F. Wheeler accepted the first prisoners to the prison. The cost to house the prisoners and maintain the building was exorbitant. Within the first 18 months of operations, the penitentiary had racked up a bill of $21,000. Wow. By now, they had 21 inmates living in a 14-person prison. Only one of which was a federal prisoner. During the times the prison was under government ownership, the Montana Territory was obligated to pay a dollar a day per person for a federal prisoner that was held there. It's a real complicated deal where, depending on who owns it, who's getting the money and who's paying money. But yeah, that's the crux of it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, on May fifteenth, eighteen seventy-three, ownership of the penitentiary was transferred from the. U.S. Attorney's Office to the Territory of Montana. Montana was now required by law to maintain the building and take care of the inmates. By this time, they were in over their heads and they knew that they needed help. They established a board of directors who appealed to Congress for help to fund an addition of 28 cells. Congress responded by just taking the prison back under their control on June twentieth, 1874.
0: So with that, it brought back U.S. Marshal William F. Wheeler. He was put in charge of constructing a second story on the building, adding to it 14 more cells, which cost them about 6000 bucks.
1: And that's about $137,000 today.
0: So he was able to keep the cost down because he used the inmates to build the addition this time. After that, he built a 12-foot wooden fence around the building to keep the men from escaping. This was completed sometime in 1875.
1: Willer was known to boast that the men never tried to escape, yet he never let them out of their cells, so that could be why.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. So a wooden fence would have hardly hold a turkey or a deer or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, let alone a determined convict.
1: Yeah, I'm sure if you really wanted to get out, you could probably push it down. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it of course wouldn't be a proper prison if there were no escapes, right?
1: The first man to escape was John A. Jessering, correct? I believe so. Okay. He was brought to the prison in December 1880, facing a five-year sentence for grand larceny. He didn't actually escape from the prison itself. He was actually out working in a hayfield when he ran away. We aren't going to tell you his whole story here, so we can focus more on the prison itself.
0: Now, we're planning to actually detail a few of the prisoners on the Patreon page, so if you want to find out if he was able to stay on the run, you can find more there.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of really fun prisoners that deserve a story in there, so...
0: Yeah, you had a list of, what, five or six that you wanted to cover? Yep. So those will be coming out pretty soon for you.
1: Um, I know, I'm excited. So, <laughs> um, Anyhow, John's escape on July 27th, 1881 made the guards realize that it was fairly easy for the men to get out if they wanted to. In 1883, they discovered seven prisoners in cells four, five, six, and seven had dug holes between the soft brick, 12-inch thick walls. So there was a hole in the wall of cell 4 going to cell 5, and then another hole in cell 5 going to cell 6, and so on. The men had a plan to all gather in cell 7, where they had already dug a tunnel beneath the cell and out to the corridor.
0: Were they doing all this with a prison spoon?
1: No, they actually were found to have like a hatchet and other materials that would have allowed them to remove windows and dig through the walls fairly easily.
0: That's interesting. They weren't allowed out of their cells very often, how they were able to acquire things. To yeah. <laughs> pretty creative on their time. Well, it was determined that only about a half hour was needed to make a hole big enough for a man to gain passage. There was another escape attempt just a few days after this plan was foiled. This one involved a gun that was smuggled in by a visitor for a prisoner. We don't really have any more detail other than it was just another attempt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Men did not serve time in the Deer Lodge Penitentiary alone. Women eventually joined the men behind bars. On December 3rd, 1878, Felicita Felicita Sanchez was escorted to Deer Lodge to serve a three-year sentence for manslaughter.
0: Three-year sentence for killing.
1: Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not that big of a deal, right?
0: No, that's fine. (laughs)
1: At the time, she was the only woman in the penitentiary until Mary Angeline Jewellard joined her on December 4th, 1879, facing a sentence of 15 years in the territorial penitentiary. Housing the women was very expensive, um, and some of the guards actually refused to even watch over the women. Um, so therefore, the, the two women, they didn't stay very long. Felicita was released after serving only 21 months of her three year sentence and Mary was pardoned on August twenty sixth, eighteen eighty two, serving almost three years of her fifteen year sentence.
0: So she had a grand larceny charge and had fifteen years. Yeah. I wish we knew what she stole that gave her 15 years, but it seems like everything that was a larceny charge was around 15 years. Yeah. And then the manslaughter was, you know, depending on the circumstances of it, he may have been beating her or something, but the fact that she killed him, they were sympathetic with her and gave her a short sentence perhaps or something. It's hard to say, but only three years for killing someone and 15 years for forging a check or something is kind of a little crazy. Yeah. Well, on July 7th, 1884, Congress appropriated $15,000 to complete the unfinished portions of the prison.
1: Um, nearly $400,000 today, so quite a bit more money.
0: Well, so when Governor John Schuler Crosby examined the building, he noticed there was no stone foundation and the weakened brick building could not support an additional tier of cells. Even though several people protested it, Governor Crosby directed the funds to be used for an administration building and guard dormitories, rather than update the prison and expand it.
1: Yeah, right? Why not? <laughs> Finally, on March 3rd, 1885, Congress again appropriated $25,000 for the completion of the territorial prison. By the spring of 1886, the South Wing was complete. It consisted of a three-story brick building. This building added 42 double occupancy cells, increasing the overall capacity to 84 inmates. It also gave them an area to place the women, which was up on the top floor. I'm sure it was probably nice in the winter months to be up there, but probably very hot and stinky in the summer.
0: Yeah, heat and smells, right?
1: Yeah. Well, they still didn't have water, so it would have been the same thing.
0: (laughs) And sweat and body odor. Yeah. Shit
1: buckets.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, during this time, Montana was still considered just a territory. On November 8th, 1889, Montana became the 41st state and with that brought them full ownership of the Deer Lodge Penitentiary. The government would no longer help them maintain the building. Up to this point, the government had given them $86,000, which in today's money is around $2 bucks to build and maintain the penitentiary.
1: I know. Well, when we figured all that out, we were both like, that's a lot of money. But then when you actually really think about in today's world, $2 million would not build a penitentiary.
0: No, it wouldn't. You can't build anything for two million bucks.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, it sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Yeah,
0: it probably wouldn't pay for the electricians to wire the building for two million bucks. No,
1: not at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The state could not afford to operate the prison, much less update it. The building and the wood wall surrounding it was deteriorating, and the prisoners were overcrowded in their cells. The state needed to figure out a way to fix the problem. They came up with the idea to lease the prison, kind of interesting mm-hmm. and they did it in two-year contracts to the lowest bidder. Thomas McTague and Frank Conley offered the State Board of Prison Commissioners a deal that they could not refuse. For 70 cents per prisoner per day for the first 100 inmates, then a dollar each for every inmate above 100. Not in age, like Drifter was teasing me earlier when we were reading that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you had said over each inmate over 100. (laughs) Like, how many do you think were over 100 years old? Zero. No.
1: (laughs) In February 1890, it was agreed to give the contract to McTague and Conley with the understanding that the state owned the land and buildings, but the two men housed and fed the inmates, administered discipline, oversaw the management of the prison, and could erect buildings as necessary.
0: These two men were not new to the legal and prison system. Thomas McTagg was a former law enforcement officer in Philadelphia. Then when he moved to Phillipsburg, Montana, he served as a deputy. In 1885, he was appointed the position of warden at the penitentiary. Frank Conley, around the age of 20, became the deputy sheriff of Custer County in what is now known as South Dakota. While delivering two prisoners to the Deer Lodge Penitentiary in 1886, he was offered a position as a guard. McTague provided the financial backing for the two men to bid on the prison, and Conley took on the duties of administrator and warden.
1: When the two men took over the new duties of managing the prison, it had 198 inmates and a cell block that could hold no more than 140.
0: So real quick... They would have, at that time, been paid 168 bucks a day, which in today's money would come to about 4500 bucks a day.
1: Now, that seems like a lot of money. Yeah. In today's money.
0: <laughs> yeah, it seems substantial for operating for 200 men. Yeah. And are feeding them beans and water.
1: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Conley's first task was to find a solution to the overcrowding. He had a wood building put up that housed around 150 men. But this was not the solution, as fire and escape were a major concern. Conley went to the state officials to try and convince them to pay for a new building, but they were in the midst of creating plans to actually build a new penitentiary in Billings. In 1893, the Depression hit the nation, and the state realized that if they were to have a state prison at all, they would need to focus their attention on the future of Deer Lodge.
0: Conley was able to persuade the commissioners to use the prisoners as laborers and update the prison. They started with tearing down the already falling apart wooden wall and replacing it with a Romanesque-style, 4-foot-deep, 20-foot-high stone wall. Each corner had a round tower with two central towers in the middle. All the material was harvested from a local quarry, then placed on rail cars and brought to the prison where the inmates were taught how to cut them to the correct size. If you ever get the chance to see this, it looks like a wall someone would build around a castle. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. We'll put some pictures up on the website to give you an idea of what it looks like. It Mm -hmm. took them about a year to complete the wall, and once completed, officials called it an architectural marvel and a monument to convict, skill, and labor.
1: I think that's a very well-deserved statement for them to make, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially at that time.
0: When it's still standing. Yeah. So what? 120 years later. Yeah. 125, 26 years later.
1: Yeah, I read. I excuse me. I saw a YouTube video that somebody had uh, interviewed a resident that had grew up in Deer Lodge, Mm. and the girl said all her childhood growing up, she always thought that that was a castle. That she had no idea that it was a prison behind there (laughs) when
0: it's right on main street
1: yeah you can't miss it (laughs) so i mean if you're driving to taking the bus to school and you're passing this every day going to dinner yeah you're like oh there's the castle Thinking some like wealthy families living in town or something (laughs) and it's the prison the whole time in 1895 the state allowed a library to be built and started a school staffed by inmate teachers. They offered educational and some vocational training. All the books in the library were donated by William A. Clark Sr., who was a wealthy copper miner.
0: Mm-hmm. So Conley's next project started in 1896. This was to build a new cell house. It consisted of two sections divided by a two-foot thick wall, which ran from the roof to the floor. The smaller section held up to 32 youths, while the large section held 258 men. It took the men one full year to complete the project, and even though a New York newspaper touted it as one of the most modern of its day, we still didn't have lights, running water, or sewage.
1: Gross. Yeah. By 1899, the prison started a band, and they were the first prison band in the nation. How fun, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. The men would practice for hours. Then on Sunday, they would have concerts for the public. I think it would be so much fun to go to the prison at that time and take like your picnic and watch them play. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) So in 1900, the prison had almost 500 men. About 370 lived within the stone walls of the prison, while the rest lived at various work sites, including 11 ranches that the warden leased and staffed with prisoners. By contracting inmates for projects throughout the state, Conley was able to provide income for the prison as well as alleviate the overcrowded conditions by housing inmates at the job sites. Those who accepted Conley's work program were able to better themselves with a new career. Also with good behavior, the men could reduce their sentences.
1: Kind of a unique program you ran, huh? Mm-hmm. One of the other practices Warden Conley would do was hold Warden's court.
0: Yeah, he would allow the inmates to come in one at a time and let them know what complaints they had.
1: Sounds like a great idea and a way to make the prisoners kind of feel like you give a shit about them, right? Mm -hmm. On March 8th, 1908, Deputy John A. Robinson brought in a group of men to talk to the warden. He left the men to wait in the hall. Conley actually heard a commotion in the hall and he went to go see what was going on. William Hayes grabbed the warden by one hand and had a knife in the other. He then said, quote,
0: If you don't let us out of here, I'll cut your head off.
1: Conley pulled out his revolver and fired three or four times, but the cartridges malfunctioned. The last one hit Hayes right above the ear. Deputy Robinson ran toward the warden, saying,
0: My God, Frank, they've got me.
1: Three prisoners, Orem Stevens, C.B. Young, and George Rock, had followed Robinson into the office and stabbed him. Calmly fired his revolver, hitting George Rock. The warden, thinking it was all over, turned to see Hayes getting up after being hit in the air. He fired a shot at him again, then picked him up and threw him out of the office into the hall.
0: George had gotten back up as well and went for the deputy slashing and stabbing at his body. Conley threw a chair at Rock, stopping him just enough to turn the knife on him. Guard E.H. Carver heard the commotion, but he was unable to get into the office because the door was locked. He started slamming his body into the door until the lock broke. Once he was able to get inside, he saw Deputy Robinson's body dead on the floor and Conley on the ground, trying to get George Rock off of him. Carver was able to hit Rock and knock him out.
1: Prison doctor is E.C. Lee And W.G. Dye tried to save Robin's life, but he had a cut on his throat that went from ear to ear.
0: Dr. Dye.
1: (laughs) It's spelled D-Y-E, guys, not (laughs) D-I-E. But I do think that that's funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Conley had roughly 50 cuts and stabs all over his body, and it took the doctors 103 stitches to close them all back up. However, they were able to save his life. Hayes received a bullet wound above his ear, a broken arm and shoulder. Rock got shot in the lung and had some bruises throughout his body. Both the prisoners lived to see their day in court where they were sentenced to hang. Oram, Stevens and C.B. Young did not get away without charges. They both received life sentences, but somehow Stevens was able to get an acquittal and just had to serve out the rest of his original sentence. I couldn't find out how he was able to do that, but I thought that was rather interesting.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, in Montana, when you are sentenced to be hung, the hanging has to take place in the county, the crime took place. Therefore, the men were to be hung in Powell County. The warden was able to make it, so the men were hung right there in the courtyard of the prison. (laughs) He sent out two separate invitations to all county sheriffs, one for W.A. Hayes for April 2nd, 1908, and the other for George Rock to be hung June 16th, 1908. Conley also made sure all the prisoners were there to witness it. He wanted the men to see the consequences of these men's actions.
1: Also, it might have been a bit of a power play on the men, like, you try and fuck with me and escape. This is what will happen. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of the way I think, right? <laughs> this was the only hanging to take place inside of the prison wall.
0: Yeah, they have a replica of the, it's called a jerk up gallows that was used there at the prison. We'll put a picture of it up on the website too, so you can check it out. Yep. It's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. The penitentiary was in need of a women's ward. By 1908, they had four women serving sentences. The jail was already overcrowded as it was with male inmates, so the warden had a women's ward built just outside the west wall of the prison. They used part of the main wall as the wall for the women's section and then built three more walls around it. The wall around the building is so high and close to the building, providing the women with nothing more to look at but the sky. They did, however, have their own kitchen, a dining room, a living room, cells for the prisoners, and a matron's quarter. Up until this point, the male guards watched over the women, and they would pretty much just ignore them. The women were not allowed in the work program the warden offered. They literally just sat in their cells day in and day out. In order for the female inmates to get to the women's section, the guard would have to walk them through the men's section and then through the yard. Years later, the state would complain about this and felt that women should not be sharing a prison with the men in any fashion. I kind of agree with that.
0: (laughs) Right? Well, Conley and McTagg's contract was up for renewal in 1908. The state decided to give the contract to another bidder, but when they were presented with a bill for expenses owed, the state could not afford to pay it. So the next year, the state assumed control of the prison and appointed Conley warden. That same year, lawmakers passed a bill allowing the prison to use convict labor. Up until this point, Conley was just using the prisoners to help with buildings at the prison as well as the 11 ranches. But now, he could use them for state-funded projects as well.
1: I was just thinking, I wonder what kind of a role Conley played in trying to get the state to pass that, where they would allow the convicts to work.
0: Well, he was a businessman, so probably a pretty big role.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, Some of the Montanians did not agree with Conley, using the prisoners as laborers around the state. Labor unions would complain, stating the prisoners were taking jobs away from them. And they would be. They, yeah, they absolutely were. <laughs> um, the warden was able to outbid companies on projects because he didn't have to pay his men. Right. <laughs> Therefore, the prison not only built several buildings in the prison yard, but they also built 11 buildings at Warm Springs Hospital, four buildings in Galena at Montana Tuberculosis Sanitarium, roads around the state, and several homes in Deer Lodge. It'd be fun to find what home was built there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Let's
0: see if the residents know the history of their own house. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, Conley would not allow just any inmates to go out and work in the fields. The men would have to serve time in the penitentiary and prove they could be trusted before he would send them out. Once out on the job site, the men would sleep in a tent with no chains and no armed guards. that'd be pretty well trusted for sure. Yeah. So the longer the men worked, the more time they could get off their sentences. If the men did not obey the orders, Conley would banish them to the hole. If y'all don't know what that is, the Deer Lodge Penitentiary had a lightless, straw-lined literal hole in the ground mm-hmm. where the men would spend between 3 to 20 days locked up. They would be served only bread and water and have no contact with the outside world. Yeah. I'm sure no bathing, no nothing either.
1: Yeah. Maybe if you were lucky, they might throw a bucket of water down on you. Yeah. (laughs) That would be horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. The prisoners were offered church services while they were incarcerated. I don't know how many of them actually went, but by 1910, Conley started offering the men two hours worth of moving picture shows after church. So, I bet by then all the men started going to church.
0: Yep, they found the Lord.
1: (laughs) Yep. Gomley saw this as a useful tool to reward the men who behaved during the week. Those that got in trouble were not allowed to see the movie.
0: Having to treat them like teenagers. Yeah. Well, (laughs)
1: anyways. (laughs) In 1911, the state approved a program to expand the prison again. This undertaking was huge. They expanded the prison wall, made room for the kitchen and a dining room, added a power plant and new cell blocks. Conley suggested the state build its own brick factory and teach the convicts how to make brick. Why not? Yeah. That's exactly what they did. The state put in a plant just south of Deer Lodge, Um, I found an article in the Independent Record by Lyndall Michael, published on June 4th, 2017. And it states that the brickyard is no longer standing. Kind of sad. It would have been really fun to be able to see something from it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the expansion of the wall was finished around 1912, and the prisoners quickly got to work on the new cell house. If you get the chance to visit the prison, this is the red brick building that looks to us just like a castle. Yep. It took them in a year to complete it, and if you see this thing, it's enormous.
1: To think that they did this in one year is just mind-blowing. They must have been working around the clock to complete it so quickly.
0: Right. Well, the building alleviated the overcrowding by adding 200 double-occupancy cells and the comforts of a sink in each room with a self-flushing toilet.
1: Oh, fancy. Yeah.
0: They also had a ventilation system of fans to circulate the air.
1: Maybe that's why they finished it so fast. They were all hoping to be housed in the new building. <laughs>
0: yeah, circulation and a flushing toilet and water. Yeah, Weren't you saying these self-flushing toilets were set up on a timer to...
1: Yeah, it was to make it so the prisoners couldn't like flush contraband or try and like clog the toilets. Mm-hmm. So they would just randomly go off. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It probably was a pretty new technology too for their time. I would imagine. Yeah, because it wasn't like our self-flushing toilets we have now where you wave your hand in front of it and it flushes. So right. kind of cool that they did that.
0: Yeah, going from no water, or no sewage at all to self-flushing toilets is quite a step.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in, in Conley's 1917 report, he recommended the construction of a suitable place to hold church services and show his movies. The state did not see a need for this, so when they, when the state denied his request in 1919. His good friend and copper miner millionaire, William A. Clark Jr., gave the prison $10,000 for the construction of the W.A. Clark Theater.
0: Yeah, it's just over two hundred grand today.
1: Yeah, we uh, also say good friend loosely because Conley would send his prisoners to work at William's Ranch and in his mine.
0: Yeah, maybe a good business associate
1: yeah not a friend (laughs) um the building of the theater was completed late march of 1920. again we do not know how they completed this building in one year it's just crazy
0: (laughs) so the theater was the first to ever be built within a prison in the united states outside it had a balcony that gave the prison band a place for outdoor performances Inside, the roof had a stained-glass skylight, and the floor was covered with colored terrazzo and Portland cement. There was a stone stairway that led to the upper balcony. They had enough seating for about 600 people in leather-covered seats. In the front of the theater was a stage, and just below that was the orchestra pit. An inmate, John F. Raymond, and the project manager, McCallman, painted three realistic scenes on curtains to be used on the scene-shifting apparatus. John Ellis, another inmate, painted a reproduction of da Vinci's The Last Supper on the main curtain.
1: That's so cool that they Mm -hmm. did all that. The theater was not only built for the prisoners to use, but also for the people of Deer Lodge. April 1st, 1920, the prison hosted its first live performance. They had a matinee for the male inmates. And then an evening show for the public and the women inmates just to keep the men and the women inmates separate. That's how they did it. Hmm. Could you imagine being part of the general public, not ever being inside prison walls, going there to see a show, and then sitting next to a prisoner? Be a little, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Wondering if you're going to get shanked.
1: Yeah, you're like, "Um, I'm going to sit over here.
0: Well, Conley was only able to enjoy the new theater as warden for one year. Newly elected Governor Joseph Dixon had him removed from the warden's office in 1921 for inefficient administration of the institution. Conley had been the warden of Deer Lodge Penitentiary for 31 years at this point.
1: It's a long time. Mm-hmm. It was also believed that Conley was embezzling money and using William Clark's help to do it. He stood trial in 1922 in Helena for several unlawful acts, most of them coming from illegal appropriations and use of prison resources.
0: And there was no jury in the court case, just Judge A.J. Horsky. He found that no written laws had been broken since Conley's dealings had been verbal agreements, and his relationship with the state was a little murky. Therefore, he was never charged with anything, and the case was dismissed.
1: With Frank Conley out of the warden's office and the state of Montana in financial ruin from the Great Depression, the convicts' labor program started reducing in size. Labor unions started fighting the idea of prison work crews taking jobs away from them, and the state actually started to worry that without armed supervision, the inmates would escape a pretty valid concern for them. The men working outside of the prison were returned, and this created another overcrowding issue. Overcrowding was not the only issue the prison faced. The old section of the penitentiary was so outdated, it still did not have running water, and the prisoners were still using the bucket system. The newly built jailhouse did have running water, however, the shower room only had three shower heads to serve the 400 men. Twice a week, the inmates would get in line, they entered the first shower to get wet, the second shower to soap up, and the third shower to rinse off. No time to drop the soap, boys. Hurry on.
0: (laughs) Some of the men did still have an opportunity to work inside the prison, because in the 1920s, the prison got a contract to make license plates. In 1927, the legislature offered $40,000,
1: which is nearly $600,000 today.
0: And they used that to build a license plate and garment factory. But in still, instead of building a new factory, they gutted the old penitentiary. They used the middle section of the building as office space, and the two wings were used for the license plate and garment manufacturing.
1: The 1930s brought on a large number of mill inmates. They had more than 700 prisoners locked behind these walls. The state eventually decided to build a new building, but not to help with the overcrowding. Now they put in a new administration building. They tore down the old, dilapidated, stinky, outdated territorial penitentiary, had the prisoners salvage the brick from it, and build the new administration building. Inside the new building, they had housing for the guards, a new dining room, a visitor's area. They also put in a laundry room and offices. I bet the men would be on their best behavior so they could work in the laundry room in the winter with the the dryers going. (laughs) Right. When they tore down the old building, they didn't remove all of it. On the back side of the building is a door that would lead to a section of the old territorial prison that they would use this as the new hole for the men that misbehaved.
0: So the state also had another building built in 1935. This building had the hospital on the west side of it and on the east side was the license plate manufacturing area. The prison up until this point did not have a hospital to provide medical care for the inmates. Now they had a modern medical facility that included an infirmary, a surgical room, dental care, and a spot for psychiatric care.
1: It's nice to start kind of making some improvements in that Mm -hmm. realm. Um, After Conley was removed for the warden's office, that position became a revolving door of men that the state would put in office and after a short while they would leave. Some of the men put into the warden's office had actually no law enforcement training whatsoever prior to becoming a warden. Some of them were a railroad conductor, a postmaster, and a road engineer who were close to being anywhere in the law enforcement. (laughs) Not at all. Because of the frequent changes of the warden, the guards never stayed long either and this meant that new guards coming in would not be properly trained on how to manage the inmates and what to do with them if they acted out. On top of this, the prison was still overcrowded. Now you have this out-of-control situation where there are not enough train guards to handle the number of prisoners behind the walls.
0: The inmates were a little fed up with the conditions in the penitentiary. They wanted better food, a chance for an education, an updated facility, and a chance to make money inside the prison walls. The idleness of the prisoners grew to contention, and on July thirtieth, 1957, members of the prison band started the first, what they considered a riot.
1: They call it the pea riot You'll know why in a second, but it's, <laughs> that was funny, they labeled it the pea riot Right?
0: <laughs> so they were ordered to go pick peas from the prison garden located in the yard, and they refused to do so.
1: It was probably hot. (laughs) How riotous of them. (laughs) Ooh. On January 27th,
0: 1958, the convicts instigated a 24-hour sit-down, demanding better conditions like lights in the cells, better food, and for the state to eradicate the con boss system inside the jails. After the sit-down, the governor agreed to find a warden that would be better suited to take care of the inmates. In August of 1957, the governor hired Floyd Powell, a professionally trained warden who at the time was living in Wisconsin. Warden Powell brought along with him his right-hand man, Ted Roth, and made him the deputy warden. These men were put in the position to clean up the prison and provide the men with better treatment.
1: Floyd had no idea what kind of a mess he was getting himself into when he took on the job. We mentioned just a bit ago that the inmates wanted something done about the con boss system inside the walls. What this means is a group of inmates basically had control over the prison. They would dominate over the in- other inmates and they would control who got to work in what area of the prison.
0: Jerry Miles, who at the time was 42 years old, was very familiar with how the prison system worked and at one time was even involved in a riot that took place in Alcatraz. It is said that he walked around the prison like he owned the place and was called Little Hitler by the guards. (laughs) Well,
1: Miles was in charge of the garment shop and when the new warden came in and fired all the con bosses, then replaced them with civilian supervisors, this upset Miles and he wanted revenge. The riot of 1959 was not about men trying to escape the prison. It was about Jerry Miles being a little bitch about losing his le- leading role in the garment shop.
0: He didn't want out of the prison that he had control over. He just wanted his control back. A little narcissistic here. <laughs> yeah. He wanted to show Warden Floyd Powell and Deputy Warden Ted Roth who was really the boss.
1: In the book Montana State Prison History by James R. McDonald, Warden Powell is quoted as saying,
0: The prison was a tension-ridden, overcrowded, disorganized mess. A powder keg set to explode at the slightest provocation.
1: That's exactly what happened. Jerry was able to convince his 19-year-old boyfriend, Lee Smart, and another inmate, George Elton, to stage a riot.
0: So around 4 p.m. on April 16th, the madness began. The three men were able to obtain 30 30 rifles from the guard catwalks in both cell houses.
1: The men then began to take hostages. George took all of the hostages downstairs while Miles and Smart went to the deputy warden's office in the administration building.
0: There was a struggle between the men, and Smart shot and killed Deputy Warden Ted Roth. Sergeant Cox was stabbed in the arm and shoulder during all this, but he was able to make a recovery from his wounds.
1: Miles rejoined Elton and had one of the guards being held hostage to call the warden. The warden did not live inside of the prison. He actually lived across the street and Miles knew this. He had the guard tell him that there was a disturbance inside the walls and that they needed him to come over.
0: So once Powell was inside the walls, Miles and Smart captured him and forced him to call the governor of Helena. But the governor was not in his office.
1: Hello, governor.
0: Hello, Governor. <laughs> Powell was then placed in the custody of an inmate named Walter Trotchy. Miles ordered him to kill the warden with a kitchen knife if the governor didn't call by 8 p.m.
1: Powell was able to convince Trotchy to let him go in exchange for amnesty. The warden was able to escape back outside the prison walls.
0: Jerry Miles and Warden Floyd Powell tried for three days to come up with a resolution to no avail.
1: On the third day... National Guard troops from Missoula, Deer Lodge, and Helena arrived with machine guns, a World War II vintage bazooka, and tear gas.
0: They were able to determine that Jerry Miles and Lee Smart were held up in the northwest tower of the 1912 cell block, and the 23 hostages were in the northeast cells.
1: Saturday morning, the National Guard fired three rockets at the side of the Northwest Tower while the remaining men in the National Guard stormed inside the building to rescue the hostages.
0: You can still see where two of the bazooka blasts hit when you visit out in the yard. It's on the back of the building from there. Yeah. Um, and you can also see the bazooka that fired the shot. I'm pretty sure it's the bazooka. If not, it's a
1: replica or something of or it. One huh? from
0: the same time frame or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When the National Guard was able to get inside the Northwest Tower to detain the men, they were too late. Jerry and Lee were dead. During the investigation, they were able to determine that Jerry Miles shot and killed Lee Smart, then turned the rifle on himself. Meanwhile, George Elton, who was really just wanting to escape, gave up his role in the riot on Friday and went back to his jail cell to wait it out. Alton served two years in maximum security and was paroled in 1966.
0: So this riot opened officials' eyes to the dangerous situation they had in the prison. They had some of the worst offenders locked up in a cell with other inmates who were serving time for petty crimes. They decided to move the women out of their jailhouse and converted it to a 24-cell maximum security facility. Not knowing what to do with the women, they placed them in the warden's garage at his house. (laughs) Just across the street. Yep. (laughs) So the first woman to be admitted to the new makeshift jailhouse was none other than Ruby Garrett.
1: If you don't remember her, then go back and listen to our episode about the red light district in Butte, Montana. That
0: would be mile marker 10.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then you'll find out why she was there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Today, the maximum security section looks Nothing like it once did when the women lived there. When they moved the men to the section, they added 20 high-security cells and four disciplinary cells. Two of them were for suicidal inmates, and the other two were known as the black box and were used to replace the hole.
0: So the last two cells on the left were the ones used for the suicidal inmates. They had a bar on the wall that allowed the inmates to be handcuffed by the wrists and ankles. The two cells with the black doors were the black box cells. When the door was closed, it was completely dark inside. They were fed bread and water. Every third day, they would get a hot meal. The only thing in the room was a mattress, a wool blanket, and a shit bucket.
1: The maximum security did not have plumbing, and the inmates actually took advantage of this. One prisoner would grab a guard through the bars and hold them there while another prisoner threw his shit bucket on him.
0: To combat the situation, they had wooden doors placed in front of the metal bar doors, making it so the inmates could not grab the guards anymore.
1: People are absolutely disgusting to do this. Four months after the riot, an earthquake shook the prison. The damage caused to the 1896 jailhouse forced them to tear it down. Now, they're just sits a concrete slab as a reminder of where it used to be. It also made it so officials needed to figure out what to do with the men who were living in the building. In 1960, Montana voters rejected a $5 million bill to build a new jailhouse. Warden Powell, who surprisingly stayed after the riot, was fed up with the way things were being handled and resigned in 1962.
0: In an attempt to make do with what they had, officials turned the dining room in the administration building into an inmate dormitory. The bakery was replaced with a chapel, and they had a few more showers added.
1: Probably two more? No. Right? <laughs> Towards the end of the prison's use in 1971, the legislator approved $3.8 million for a new facility. Construction began in 1974 on the 33,000 state-owned acres that I think is kind of ironic Conley's Prisoners once farmed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The final upsetting thing to happen at the prison came on December 3rd, 1975 when a fire swept through the W.A. Clark Theater. What they have been able to determine happened was that evening the inmates watched the Odessa file. After the showing was over, a few of the inmates stayed back to clean up. They theorized that an inmate had a homemade incendiary device, such as a candle in a toilet paper roll, and started the fire in a wrestling mat. The mats were quickly pulled out of the building, but in the process, the stage curtain caught on fire and it quickly spread from there. The theater was not completely destroyed. On our last visit, the doors were opened, yet roped off, not allowing us any further to enter inside. You can at least get a good feel of what it once was. I remember standing there with you looking in and saying, how cool would this be if somebody bought this and restored it to its original design?
0: Yeah, it'd be awesome, really.
1: Yeah. But now it's just full of pigeons and pigeon shit. It would cost so much money to fix that building up, I think. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, and there's only a couple thousand residents out there. so. Well, the new prison was completed in 1979, and the 325 inmates were moved to the new Montana State Prison. It's about three and a half miles west of Deer Lodge. The old Montana prison is now a museum, open to the public year-round.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it was doing during COVID, but you might want to check if you're going to go to visit if we're still in the middle of everything, you know. Um, The museum is a self-guided tour, but they do provide you with a really neat booklet. It's, like, printed on newspaper. It's kind of fun. That booklet is used for you to reference as you walk around. It tells you about each of the locations. When we went, it was $15 per person, but the $15 gives you access to the prison museum. The Montana Auto Museum, Frontier Montana Museum, and the Powell County Museum. And they also have an open-air museum that is a rebuilt old-time city. That one is actually free, and you can just kind of walk around and explore it yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well worth the visit, guys. I've been there at least twice.
1: Yeah, I think you're correct.
0: Yeah, very much worth a spot. That car museum alone is pretty cool too. If you like the old cars, it seems to be mostly a private collection of somebody because about half of them have the same owner's name on it. So it's probably a tax write-off for them, but a lot of cool old cars up there.
1: Well, they give you like a fun little pamphlet about the cards. And I want to say like the first card they have in there was like a 1863 hand card or something like that. Yeah, Mormon hand card, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: It's kind of fun. And then like their newest one, according to the pamphlet that I have from back then, was like a 2006 Mini Cooper or something. Right. (laughs) It's kind of fun.
0: All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That's our time in the old Montana State Pen.
1: We would like to thank you all again for joining and continuing to support our efforts. We used a good number of resources in researching this episode. A book of note was Dark Spaces by Ellen Baumler. And the actually the guide tour book that they give you at the penitentiary when you go there it's actually came in really handy for this too.
0: Right. So I wanted to note, uh, we recently received a note from a listener stating that Movies or television do not work for putting her six-week-old son to bed. It's music or the rebel at large.
1: Aw, that's so awesome. Certainly probably our youngest fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, Sammy.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sammy.
0: Now, I think it's time for Dead Jokes with Gypsy. Yeah. Do you have one for us?
1: Yeah, it's actually my idea of a joke uh, because people won't send me jokes and it makes me really sad. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So, did you know that the Energizer Bunny was arrested?
0: They arrested the Energizer Bunny? Yes. What could they possibly have arrested him for?
1: Well, he was charged with battery.
0: (laughs) Yes, he was.
1: Why do you always just <laughs> stare at me?
0: <laughs> All right, then. Well, you heard her. You would
1: think it would be like a noise disturbance since he's always banging those damn drums. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the call's still out there. If you'd like to help Gypsy out with these, please send her an email with dad jokes in the subject line. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you can find her email on the website
1: rebel at com.
0: there we'll also have pictures of our visit to the prison i'll put a link for the email in the show notes as well to make it easy for you guys yeah Um, if you want to keep up with us on the social stuff instagram is our most active page which is
1: at rebel at large links to the other social things can also be found on our website
0: well thanks again folks we'll talk to y'all here in a couple weeks
1: safe travels
0: we'll see y'all down the road